Hello, and welcome back to Love and Friendship. Today we have a pretty weird and broad spread of texts to talk about, and primarily what we need to do today is talk about the transition from the Greek culture and Greek philosophy in the West to the sort of dawn of the Roman Empire and its, you know, most powerful stages and the, the sort of philosophy that it's prescribing here through the writers that we're looking at, like Theano, um, Ovid, Lucretius, and Cicero. Um, I called a bit of an audible on this one. Sorry to all of you who have been listening on to lectures trying desperately to follow along. Um, I switched it around. Originally we were going to start with Cicero and then make our way to the other Stoic writers, but I kind of wanted to talk about Stoicism first. Um, and honestly, De Amicita is actually really easy to break into the first third and the second th two thirds rather than the other way around. So yeah, we're, we switched it around a bit. Um, so if in fact you're scratching your head trying to figure out what's going on here, um, the texts that we're reading today are Theano's Letter on Marriage and Fidelity, um, a couple of little chunks which hopefully I'll get around to uploading um, at some point on from Ovid's The Art of Love. Um, a decent portion of Lucretius's On the Nature of Things, De Rerum Natura, um, specifically his discussion of love, um, like towards the, well, well into book four, I think, um, from, like, there's a PDF that I've got that's like page 178 to 185 here, um, and then the first third of De Amicita leading through the first couple of sort of interactions between Gaius Laelius as Cicero reports them. Um, but in, for all of the various texts that we're going to read and the, all the texts that I do in fact want to discuss, the main thing that we really need to talk about today is the history here. Um, the move from Greek culture to Roman culture is a huge one. As much as we're not moving very far in time, like we're going from three to 500 BCE describing you know, all of our Eastern texts as well as Plato and Aristotle, to roughly around 100 BCE to 100 CE, um, like almost all of our writers today come from there. Uh, Cicero is in fact fairly early in the list of uh, Roman writers uh, insofar as he's like, or, or at least he's positioning himself very early by talking about specifically Gaius Laelius and Scipio Africanus as, you know, these two major figures during the Second Punic War, but we're already getting ahead of ourselves. So let's start with where we left off. Um, I mentioned briefly that, like, Aristotle was palling around with Alexander the Great during his conquest of basically the known world at that time. Um, but we kind of need to emphasize this because it has really important consequences and really is kind of the moment that this isolated Greek culture with its, you know, weird democracy and, and sort of strange focus on individualism suddenly became the dominant socio-political like cultural force in the entire Western world. Um, the fact of the matter is, like, back when Plato and Aristotle were palling around, at this point it was like after Plato's day, but Plato had found his, his school, the academy. Aristotle was one of his rising pupils. Um, in this time, Philip of Macedon, Alexander the Great's father, swept down from Macedonia and took over basically the entire Greek archipelago. Um, all of those city-states that we've been talking about all suddenly fell under Philip of Macedon's sway and control. And following up on his father's great achievement, Alexander the Great 
carried this party even farther. He invaded, like, mainland Europe uh, via Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today, um, swept through the Arabian Peninsula into Egypt, swept all the way east to the Indus River, like, the, the sort of into India, the subcontinent, um, and just took over everything in his way. He took over the entire Persian Empire as it stood and more. Um, and to this day, I believe Alexander the Great is like the greatest ancient empire for sheer like distance and, and size um, that we will see until like Genghis Khan. Um, as much as the Roman Empire was a more stable structure and had more people in it than Alexander the Great's empire did, um, Alexander the Great just simply had more sheer land mass under his control when he died um, than any other, you know, single emperor or, or conqueror, again, until uh, Genghis Khan. Um, and with this came a unification of cultures as well. Um, according to legend, Alexander the Great slept with a copy of Homer's Iliad under his pillow. Um, he traveled with Aristotle, and Aristotle served as his teacher and, and guide. Um, like, he brought Greek culture to all of these disparate parts of the world, like as far east as India, as far south as Egypt, um, as far north as Asia Minor and, and Greece. Like, all of these, for this period in time, all spoke Greek, all had Greek culture sort of imposed upon them in some cases. They used the same, like, monetary system. They had the same bureaucratic government standing over it. Um, as much as the, the duration of Alexander's empire is kind of weird because Alexander himself, like, died very young, um, like, he conquered the entire world and then promptly, like, kicked it, and that was just all there was to it, um, which, you know, leaves a burgeoning empire in a fairly strange position. Um, in this case, Alexander's top generals all ended up sort of divvying up the empire into four little sections, and it was constant infighting between them, and it became this giant mess. Um, but suffice it to say that his reach was significant and endured for a long time. Um, there would be trade between as far east as India and as far west as Greece for centuries to come. And when the, the Romans sort of swept through and took over the entire ancient Mediterranean world, they took large swaths of Alexander's empire and left them primarily intact. Like, they just kind of took it and kept it going the way that he had. It wasn't that big a deal to them. But what we really need to emphasize here is not so much, like, the military advances or the technological uh, advances that enabled him to perform this feat of military might, but again, this cultural influence that he has. Um, it's significant especially because we're going to talk about it later in, you know, all of our Old Testament discussion from several weeks ago at this point. Um, this also fell under the reign of Alexander the Great, like the Promised Land, Israel, Palestine. Um, that, you know, Promised Land that was supposedly promised to Abraham and which became the sort of center of this, you know, strange and, and chosen people monotheistic religion that was kind of unusual in its right. Um, this also fell under Alexander the Great's sway. And uh, in fact, like it's talked about in the Bible, um, in the book of Daniel especially, Daniel describes four regimes, like four um, conquerors uh, after Israel is conquered by the Babylonians and all of the uh, Israelites are carried off into exile. Um, 
importantly, Daniel characterizes it as, yes, the Babylonians are going to take us over, but then the Persians are going to sweep through and they're going to break us all out and we're going to go back to home. And that's exactly what happened. You know, again, most scholars think that Daniel was writing after all of this has occurred, um, dating his work significantly later than tradition would account. Um, but whether it is prophecy or history, either way, it's an interesting way of looking at it from the, the Palestinian or the Hebrew's perspective that, you know, here we were taken over by the Babylonians, which, you know, we're really grumpy about, but then Cyrus the Great sweeps through with the Persians and created the Persian Empire. Yes, the very same Persian Empire that's going to fight the 300 Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae. Um, only for the, uh, for the Hebrews, they're actually really excited about being conquered by the Persians because the Persians are actually really chill about their religion and are totally on board with their religious freedom. Funny how the villains of one story become the heroes of another. Um, suffice it to say that for a while, uh, the Hebrews enjoyed a certain amount of autonomy. They re rebuilt the temple, they rebuilt Jerusalem, they lived in some kind of peace and harmony. And then Alexander the Great and the Greeks took over the place and wrecked up the place and insisted that they adopt the Greek gods and the Hebrews, of course. Remember, their god is one. They don't mess around with this stuff. They fight back badly, and there's a whole bunch of revolutions. It's this whole big thing, uh, the Greek conquest of Palestine and their subsequent revolt. Um, in fact, a lot of Jewish traditions, including Hanukkah, uh, derive from this period of, of Jewish history, um, when the Maccabees, like this sort of dynasty of, of kings and priests, fight back against the Greeks and successfully kick them out of Palestine just in time for the Romans to show up and take over the place um, and wreck it all up again, um, which we'll come back to because this will have major importance when we start talking about Christianity. Um, but suffice it to say that, again, this sweeping change of the Greeks, this, this new conquest of the world, like, it changed everything for everybody in the ancient world. Um, most, like, many people were more than happy to welcome the Greeks into their cultures, into their uh, areas. Like, again, Alexander the Great largely did not divert from the way that the Persians were running the show. He just sort of copy-pasted um, his government and bureaucracy directly onto what the Persians had been doing before. Um, the generals who came after him are the ones who typically messed up things as much. Like, even the Jews do not seem too too upset by Alexander himself showing up, but when his generals who are taking over the place, or who are in control of the place later, the Ptolemaics, start imposing their beliefs and convictions on them, imposing their culture, insisting that they adopt their gods, that's when things come to a boiling point. Um, but again, for our purposes, it's important to note, everybody is speaking the same language right now at this moment. This is the foundation moment of Western culture. Um, this is why we study the ancient Greek myths and the ancient Greeks, Greek philosophy as opposed to the Romans or the Persians or Zoroastrianism or the Egyptian pantheon or whatever. Um, because Alexander the Great very much won the ancient world um, and unified it to, under this one banner, under this one idea, ideological framework, that ideological framework became, became the dominant one uh, for many generations to come. Um, now, obviously, this is not the end of the story. Like I said, the Romans show up literally 100 or 200 years later, and they take over the place, and they turn it into their own. Um, now, their conquest is not nearly as wide-ranging 
as Alexander's was. Like I said, Alexander the Great, his primary conquests were eastward um, through the Arabian Peninsula into, you know, what Persia typically was. We're talking about, like, everything from, like, Iran to Afghanistan all the way out to um, India. Like, the, the Romans were never interested in going that far. They never even tried. That was not their goal. Um, the Romans very much built their empire around the Mediterranean Sea. Um, and we should also mention that the Romans were not just sort of, they didn't just like magically show up after Alexander the Great and then take over the place. Like the empire of the Romans was a fairly new development and calling, well, now we're getting into semantic distinctions. Rome as a city, as a city-state compared to like Athens as a city-state or Sparta as a city-state, it had been around for a long time. Um, like various thinkers and archaeologists come to kind of different dates about exactly when the, you know, Rome of like Romulus and Remus, if they even existed, actually came into being. Um, but we're probably looking at something like 700, 600 BCE at the latest. Uh, which means they were around at the same time as Athens and Sparta were getting around, at the same time as the Greeks uh, were getting around. Um, like, they were a power in Italy the same way that any of those city-states that we talked about in Greece would have been a power in Greece. Um, now, Italy is significantly different than Greece. Again, Greece is this huge archipelago. It kind of lends itself to these isolated city-states growing powerful and being largely protected from invasion by the natural barriers. Italy is something else entirely. Like, it has some pretty rough terrain for sure, but everybody is kind of bunched up against each other, and there was a lot more fighting on the continent, or, like, on the actual uh, peninsula of Italy. Um, and as a consequence, the Romans became very warlike very quickly. And this is the key distinction here. Um, this is the thing to remember about all of Roman culture, especially in the sort of early half before the emperors show up. Um, the Romans were very militaristic, very sort of philosophically inclined towards militarism. Um, and their attitudes, as much as they inherit a lot of their philosophy and their culture and even the same sort of gods from the Greeks, though admittedly with different names and distinctly Roman spin to them, um, at the same time, like, typically all of the, the individuality that was emphasized by Athens gets sort of subjugated by, again, this sort of corporate communal mentality that Rome before all. Um, this idea that, you know, all of its citizens are serving the state and its glory. Um, and this is significant for a number of reasons, because, again, the history of Rome is not one monolithic story. Like, we talk about Athens in its golden age and, you know, kind of ignore the fact that it spent a lot of time fighting off tyrants or being conquered or, you know, getting wiped out by the Spartans in the Peloponnesian War, or getting overcome by Philip of Macedon and, and his son, you know, during Hellenism. For the Romans, it's similarly complicated, but it's significantly more talked about. Um, largely because Roman culture sort of endured and continued during this time. Um, so Roman history can sort of be logically divided into, let's call it, four phases. 
Um, the first phase is kind of the prehistoric Rome. Rome before any historians had sat down to start recording things. Rome before sort of the, the glorious moments of its empire. Rome before culture had really pervaded it and, and turned it into as much a cultural powerhouse as it was a, a military, military and sort of like power powerhouse. Um, and that, that was the age of the kings. Many, many years ago, like most Roman writers sort of refer to this you know, apocryphic time when the kings ran ran the show. Um, and, you know, they, they point especially to the founders, Romulus and Remus, who were, according to legend, two brothers who, you know, were, like, cast out of their house by a, a usurper, um, sent down the, the river, um, and, like, adopted by a she-wolf who suckled them at her teats. And they like grew up wild, and then apparently found decided to found this city on the seven hills of Rome. Um, Romulus and Remus were twin brothers. They apparently fought for some reason. Again, stories kind of vary. There's this great story that apparently like Romulus was like, "I'm gonna build this wall around my city, and I'm gonna call it Rome, and anyone who jumps over this wall will answer to me." And apparently like Remus jumped over the wall, and Romulus just like slew him on the spot and was like, "Ha ha! I told you." And apparently this is like awesome and the romans love this um this is again probably apocryphal but it is significant to notice that rome did have this period of history that is largely before the historians really know any uh what they're doing with it um so you've got like historians like polybius specifically writing about the punic wars or Livy trying to get back to this period and kind of failing um there's a lot of lore a lot of myth a lot of storytelling behind the the origins of rome in its kingly days um, but it wasn't nearly as influential. Rome really started to expand after it had changed its government from this monarchy to a republic. Um, and again, the birth of the republic is sort of, again, an apocryphal thing, and I'm not terribly knowledgeable about this period in Roman history, so I really can't speak to it all that much. Um, but what I will say is that this is largely considered by the Romans to be the height of its significance, I say very carefully. Um, the thing about studying ancient Rome is that you always have to deal with Rome's own self-image. Like, it's a huge part of understanding Roman history. Um, so, again, like, as much as Rome during the time of the Senate, in the, in the time of the Roman Republic, is considered by Romans even much later, much after the fact, um, to be sort of the height of Rome's cultural glory, the, the sort of ideal version of itself. The fact of the matter is, Rome under the Republic wasn't nearly as powerful as Rome under the Emperors. Um, it's just everybody liked it better, apparently. Um, and Rome is sort of steeped in these stories about its power at that time. Um, Notably, for our purposes, this includes the time that Cicero is writing and the time that Cicero is writing about. Um, again, Cicero being one of the earliest of our Roman writers today, it's especially significant because C Cicero is very sort of immersed in his own history. Like, he spends the bulk of the time uh, of the reading that we did today talking about great Roman statesmen like Cato and like Scipio Africanus, like Gaius Laelius. Um, he's just throwing these names around left and right, and they probably threw you for a loop. Most of them, I don't know. Um, but at the same time, notice that he refers to these guys with the utmost respect, that these are household names. 
in the Roman Empire. These are the great men who, you know, founded this city, who made it what it is today, who fought great battles, who accomplished great things. Um, this is the world that Cicero inhabits, and this is not atypical of the way that the Romans talk to, about themselves. Like, they talk about their grand statesmen the way that we in America talk about George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or, you know, Alexander Hamilton or any of those sort of larger-than-life figures that we've adopted as our forefathers. You know, when we talk about the Founding Fathers, we do so with this kind of bated breath. The Romans, if anything, thought even higher of their founders. Um, and again, this history is more recent. Uh, like, us talking about the Founding Fathers, we're talking about something that's like 230, 250 years old. Cicero is talking about Scipio and Gaius Laelius and Cato, even though he's only writing like 100 years, or maybe 150 at most, after the events that he's writing about. Um, but he could even go back further and name even more important Roman figures, name imp uh, other important senators and tribunes and um, generals, things like that. Um, now, importantly for our purposes, and sort of to set the stage for what exactly Cicero is doing here, um, we need to talk about what Rome was up to during the Republic, and why exactly he's so worked up about this. Um, the specific history that he's pointing to is the Second Punic War, um, which is one of the greatest and most glorious Roman conquests in Roman history, but also one of the times when Rome was at its most threatened. Um, there had been a first Punic War. P.S. All the Punic Wars are wars where Rome is fighting against Carthage. Um, throughout the Republic, Rome and Carthage are like mortal enemies, and you know, Carthage is considered like Rome's greatest threat, um, Rome's greatest rival, Rome's greatest enemy. Uh, Carthage, for those of you who are at least a little bit geographically inclined, um, if you imagine the Mediterranean Sea with Italy, you know, sticking like a boot right out into the middle of the sea there with Greece over on the east hanging out by Asia Minor, um, Carthage is almost due south of Italy. Like, it is on the African continent, which we should remember, Africa is going to be a major part of Roman holdings uh, throughout its, uh, its sort of imperial identity. Um, and it's going to be really important in the classes to come to remember that Africa is actually a huge part of, like burgeoning Christian culture and things like that. Um, Carthage is what is where we would identify Tunisia today. Um, like, that's usually where it's placed. Like, there's that little, like, nub of land that sticks out from the rest of, of northern Africa. That's typically where Carthage is assumed to have been and where the archaeological sites have, been, have found stuff. Um, so they're actually really close together. It's a straight shot by sea from Rome to Carthage. That's why the two threaten each other so much. Um, like, Rome, again, is positioned right on the Mediterranean Sea, right smack in the middle here, um, which makes it ideally suited to empire building. And the Romans do. They expand throughout the Italian peninsula into, you know, the, the sort of Mediterranean coast on Western and Eastern Europe. They take over Greece. Um, they take over, you know, the Iberian Peninsula, Spain. Um, they, you know, try and get inroads onto Africa, and they are constantly being rebuffed by the Carthaginians. 
Barbarians. Um, even their Spanish conquests are usually against the Carthaginians. The Carthaginians are building an empire at the same time that the Romans are. And at, these, at, at the end of the day, what's going on here is a race to build a stronger empire. Um, the one that will prevail against the other one will be the future of the Mediterranean world. Like, if the Second Punic War had gone differently, we might not be speaking, uh, talking about great Greek philosophers. We might be talking about great Phoenician or Carthaginian philosophers instead. That could have been the way that this broke. Um, that said, you know, obviously Greece was kind of an important part of it either way, but that's, again, some sort of historical speculation that we have neither the time nor the ability to get into. Um, for our purposes, what's significant is the Second Punic War. So after the First Punic War, like, Carthage and Rome went to their separate corners and sulked for a while. Um, but the Second Punic War is when all the super awesome generals start showing up, and Rome starts sort of hero-worshipping the people who are involved in fighting back against this threat. Um, so the Second Punic War is again Carthage versus Rome. Like there's some more empire building, nerves are fraying, the Romans are trying to get back onto Spain and Carthage is constantly pushing them back, and finally it breaks it out into all-out war. Um, weirdly the first move on this one is actually going to be the Carthaginians. This is the famous move by Hannibal, the great Carthaginian general. Um, he takes all of his armies and all of his elephants and lands on Western Europe and then crosses the Alps with his mighty army of elephants and troops and the whole thing. Like, Hannibal marched elephants over the Alps, guys. This is, like, some of the most exciting, his, like, crazy war nonsense in the entire ancient world. Um, he finally makes it to Italy, and he is running the Romans ragged. He is terrifying them. This is as close as Rome has come to being sacked in many, many years, and they know they're not going to survive. Like, Carthage has been fighting with Rome for too long. This is their last chance. Like, everything comes down to this. Um, and the first general to sort of match wits with Hannibal, and everybody acknowledges, like, Hannibal is this brilliant general. He is absolutely running circles around Rome's various generals and, and military tacticians. Like, it is, he is embarrassing the Romans over and over and over again with his brilliant statesmanship, his brilliant uh, tactics. Um, finally, the guy who actually manages to, to sort of stop Hannibal... Um, is this great Roman general called Fabius, using his famous Fabian strategy, which is basically to never fight. Like, the entire Fabian plan is we're just going to, you know, wage little skirmishes here and there, pick off his troops here and there, but we're going to wage a war of attrition. And every time Hannibal seeks open combat, Fabius is going to retreat. And then he's going to wait for a better time to strike. And the, this works. Like, it's actually brilliant. It annoys the Romans so much because they consider this so unmanly. And, you know, this is not the way that Romans do battle. Like, Romans stand in their, in their lines and they fight and they kill everything and nothing survives because the Romans are blessed by the gods. And, you know, Jupiter and Mars stand watch over them and, like, there's nothing that can get in their way. But, you know, since Hannibal's been wrecking them every time that they do this, obviously this isn't working. So Fabius comes up with this alternative strategy. And the, the Roman Senate is constantly, constantly, 
like telling Fabius to shut up and, and actually sit and fight and sending other generals to take over the place, who Hannibal like promptly embarrasses and then Fabius goes back to his hit and run tactics. Um, but Fabius wins. Like as much as Hannibal, you know, every time that the Romans actually meet Hannibal on the field, including the disastrous battle at Cannae, um, like Hannibal creams them without even trying. But Hannibal is still far from Carthage. His supply lines are thin. There's no way that he can get more troops, more reinforcements, more resources. So the battle of attrition is the right call on this. And finally, Hannibal is forced to retreat back to, to Africa, to Carthage, at which point the Romans follow him. Not Fabius. Fabius is very much not in favor, favor at this point because, you know, again, he didn't fight like a real man. Um, instead, uh, the Romans like, are initially res resistant to the idea of chasing Hannibal at all, but enter Scipio Africanus before he becomes Scipio Africanus. At this point, he's just Scipio. Um, Scipio was actually at that disastrous Battle of Cannae, and he and a bunch of the troops got, you know, the floor, like, they were just wiped out by Hannibal and his very devious strategic abilities here. Like, seriously, so many scholars of tactics and war and history have just studied the Battle of Cannae because, like, Hannibal is so brilliant there. Um, if I were actually in class, I might, like, you know, get on the board and describe the whole thing. Like, it's just fun to talk about. Um, suffice it to say for our purposes that Scipio was there. Scipio saw Hannibal wreck everyone. Scipio is actually there with a bunch of troops who are disgraced from having lost to Hannibal at various times, and Scipio is actually getting these veterans together to make an elite fighting force. Um, and finally, uh, he's sort of petitioning the Roman Senate, saying, hey, let me chase Hannibal, I can take him out. And the Senate's like, no, that's a terrible idea, no, there's no way, like, really, you and a bunch of disgraced former soldiers are going to do this? No, get out of here. And, and Scipio finally gets, like, a, a, uh, a sort of compromise where the Senate's like, you know what, fine. If you really think you and a bunch of ragtag idiot veterans are going to be able to take down Hannibal, go for it. Go ahead and take care of the advantage. Just, you know, don't expect us to reinforce you or send more troops. And Scipio takes his band of irregulars, lands on the African coast, performs a potentially questionable attack uh, by night, like a surprise attack at Utica, and then engages Hannibal in battle and overcomes him, like actually wins. Scipio conquers Carthage. Um, and this is, like, the first time this has happened since the First Punic War. Like, I'm pretty sure the Romans never even got this close in the First Punic War. So, they're dumbstruck. Like, how did Scipio, this green, you know, like, he's not even a proper general, become this conqueror of the Second Punic War, the guy who, like, single-handedly won the Second Punic War for the Romans, which is where he earns his title, Scipio Africanus. Um, Scipio the Conqueror of Africa and he is like paraded and celebrated and they like Ro the Romans definitely know how to throw a party when it comes down to it like in the later part of the Roman Empire it's apparently such a big deal that they like parade the general who was conquered through the streets of Rome up to the, the Senate building and like there's all these people celebrating and they're parading all of his conquests like all the things that he captured on his victories whether it's slaves or like gold or other stuff all paraded together um, and it's such a big deal 
that supposedly uh, several of the emperors and other major sort of players here actually hire someone to stand behind this, you know, celebrated, like, uh, victorious general and just remind him periodically, like, oh, by the way, you're still human, remember? <laughs> remember Caesar, thou art mortal, is, is the way that Marcus Aurelius has it sort of recorded. Um, like, this is how big a deal it is. And the Romans, too, they do not skimp on the partying. Like, there are famous accounts of Roman parties that will go on for literally weeks. Um, and there is also, famously, the Roman vomitorium, where, you know, while you were eating and drinking your way to, you know, just this wild state of revelry that you would occasionally excuse yourself to go vomit up everything that you had eaten and drunk so you can come back to the party and continue. Um, like, this is just how the Romans roll, baby. Like, they do not mess around. They pull, they fight hard, they work hard, and they play hard. Um, but what I want to stress about all this, in addition to sort of the historical elements that Cicero is especially kind of drawing out here, um, is that the Romans very much have this sort of identity built around their military conquests, around their heroes, around their, you know, great statesmen. You know, just as Cicero is very quick to talk about Cato and Gaius Laelius and Scipio and all of these other major Roman figures, um, this is normal for the Romans. They are very much in love with their own heritage. Um, and honestly, like, to give you sort of the best contemporary parallel, you'd probably have to look at contemporary fascist cultures, stuff like Hitler and his pageantry uh, with the Third Reich and the Nazi regime, or Stalin and his, you know, propaganda, his, his sort of big demonstrations of Soviet power. Um, the Romans were all about this, and these contemporary figures very much based their rule on Roman uh, design. Like, even Hitler, where he talks about the Third Reich, being this sort of, you know, the third great age of German, uh, like, conquest and, and accomplishment, the first Reich he's talking about is Rome. Like, he sees himself as a direct inheritor of Roman success. Um, and fascist models in the 20th century typically are based on Roman models of how to sort of govern the people and how to sort of demonstrate their own prowess and political power. Um, you would not be wrong to see this as tyranny, um, to see this as a sort of cult of the culture, like a, a military cult or even a death cult in some cases. As much as we typically imagine ancient Rome as being this, you know, bastion of civilization, as this, this critical foundation for Western culture, and very much like every government for the next 2,000 years is going to point to Rome as sort of its justification for being, which we'll talk about in the weeks to come. Um, as much as that is the case, Rome kind of sucked. Um, as much as, you know, we've talked about, like, the problems that Athenian democracy had, and Aristotle had his whole conversation about, like, the good and bad kinds of government, um, Rome had its problems. And Rome's successes were very much trumpeted over its failures. Like, we'll get to this in a little bit. Um, but again, I want to stress that this is the Republic of Rome. This, like, this is still before Julius Caesar and company. Um, the Republic is considered sort of the high watermark in Roman accomplishment, largely because, on the one hand, it did have these great military figures, these heroes of virtue and, and power who, you know, were able to accomplish these great feats of strategy and these great feats of, of like, 
overcoming and endurance. Um, like Scipio is regarded so highly, not because you know he just beat all these people up, but because he had he was perceived as having all of the great Roman virtues, patience and endurance. Um, for all of what I've said about the Romans knowing how to party and having a good time, also the Romans tended to frown upon indulgence. Um, they were kind of skeptical of riches and did not typically admire people who sort of flaunted wealth and, and power. Um, instead, the proper Roman regime was very Spartan in its, in its uh, construct. Like, you were supposed to, as a Roman citizen, train carefully and rigorously, not give yourself over to too much booze or too much pleasure, but instead sort of harden your body and resist temptation, resist indulgence, practice temperance, as Aristotle would call it. Um, and this is especially significant for us, um, because out of, you know, on the one hand, we've sort of been talking about the Roman political system and, and its history, uh, but we can't really go forward talking about this without also talking about Greece's influence on Rome, which is another really complex kind of thing here. Because remember, the Romans are all about their national pride. They absolutely think that the Roman way is the best way. And they you know, can point to their triumphs over Hannibal or their triumphs over Carthage as evidence that the gods favor the Roman way of life. Um, shortly after the Second Punic Wars, I believe, uh, the, Rome, the Romans do take over Greece. Like, they just wipe the place out. They include it as part of their empire. Um, and this is part of the reason why Greek culture is so influential on Rome. But also because, like... The Romans themselves recognize that they come from Greek-adjacent stock. Like that story about Romulus and Remus, both Romulus and Remus are considered to be um, part of the line of Aeneas, one of the last of the great Trojan, uh, Trojan sons of Priam, and therefore the inheritor of Troy's glory. Um, on the one hand, Rome sees itself as being a specifically Italian, specifically Latin entity. On the other hand, they see themselves as inheriting their glory and their accomplishments from Troy uh, in, the, in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, just as the Greeks sort of overcame Troy, the Romans kind of see the Greeks as their rivals, especially once they've successfully put the Carthaginians to bed in the Third Punic War. Um, so you'll notice that Cicero is kind of really reluctant to praise the Greeks. Um, like, three times in this section, he talks about the Greek who was admired by the Oracle at Delphi, or who was called the, the wisest man in Athens by the Oracle at Delphi. And as we talked about, this is obviously Socrates that he's referring to. But notice that Cicero never refers to him by name. Like, it's just like reading Harry Potter, where it's like, he who must not be named. Like, Socrates is apparently he who must not be named. Um, and, you know, every time that... that uh, Cicero is like, well, there was that really smart guy, Socrates, um, and he said this really smart thing. He will always, always immediately qualify this by saying, but, you know, Cato's smarter. And really, who was this Socrates asshole anyway? Like, what did he really do? Um, multiple times throughout on Friendship, Cicero is sort of quick to mention 
you know, yeah, there are all those those philosophers in Greece who just have apparently nothing better to do than just sit around and talk about abstractions all day. And Gaius Laelius and Cicero's voice and Cicero himself are very quick to point out, but we Romans are practical. We, we don't care about high-minded ideals. We're not interested in some ideal form. We're, we're interested in what is here and now. What can we touch? What can we, you know, interact with? We don't care about these ideal people that Plato and Aristotle are talking about. We want to see like real people what do people actually behave like so we're not gonna you know we're not gonna pay attention to some model of what a person should look like no let's let's look at these people who really were great our Cato's and our Scipio's um, let's look at actual examples of, of morality and virtue and not these sorts of theoretical people that we should aspire to the way that the Greeks talk about it um, the Romans don't like the Greeks they're really self-conscious about them because it's kind of very similar to the way that, like, the, again, to sort of bring up a contemporary parallel, the Germans in the 20th century are really self-conscious about the French. Um, like, you'll notice that, you know, they take over France, they take over Paris, they install their government at Vichy, and they don't, like, destroy the place. Because, again, France is considered this really important cultural center, it's really influential, it's very much the foundation of Western culture, and Hitler is loath to admit it, but it kind of has to be admitted. The Romans have a very similar relationship to the Greeks, if not more so. Um, like, through the first century, after the Roman emperors have come to power, there's this huge movement among uh, Roman poets and stuff to sort of duplicate the accomplishments of the Greeks. So you've got Ovid writing his version of Greek mythology and the Metamorphoses, but with a very Roman bent to it. You've got Virgil, who is sort of like taking uh, Homer's model of the epic poem in the Iliad and the Odyssey, and he's creating the far superior Roman epic poem, the Aeneid, which is the story of Aeneas and how he comes to like Rome and founds the city and multiple times throughout the poem Virgil very much emphasizes like here's this thing that Odysseus struggled with a whole bunch and Aeneas like knocks it out of the water like that Odysseus guy was such a pansy Aeneas is where it's really at like it's it's kind of puerile and kind of silly but it's also very important to Roman identity to prove that the Greeks are inferior and the Romans superior that even though every like rich noble Roman citizen has a Greek tutor probably educating his children the same way that the Greek uh, philosophers and sophists were educating Greek children, you know, three, four hundred years ago, like, the Romans have to distance themselves. Well, yes, that's because they're conquered, and they're slaves, and it's okay, because Romans will always prevail over Greeks, because Greeks suck. Like, it's... It's weird to see in writing, but it's very important to our, our understanding of how this works. The Romans are very much indebted to the Greeks for many of their cultural accomplishments. Like, even in ancient Rome throughout the first several centuries, like, up to, like, second, third century uh, AD and beyond, Greek is still the primary language of trade in the Roman Empire. Like, as much as the Romans are like, no, we've got to kick this out and make it Latin, it just doesn't take. Whatever Alexander the Great did with Hellenism just sticks. 
Um, like, even the New Testament is written originally in Greek because all of those Jews who are sort of watching Jesus, you know, become a thing and who are, you know, writing the Gospels and writing epistles, they're all writing in Greek because that's the trade language, not Latin. No Christian is going to write in Latin until Tertullian in like 150, 200 AD. Um, the idea of a Latin Bible isn't going to strike anyone until well after that. Um, it's just not the most important cultural force in the world. Like, the Romans took over the place, sure, but the Greeks very much informed everyone long before that happened, and that stuck. It's not going away, and the Romans are grumpy about it. Um, now, the other thing that we really need to talk about, like I said, there are sort of four periods in Roman history. The third one and the most important is the imperial period, the time of the emperors. Um, so as we said, the Romans are really proud of their Senate, their republic structure. And in the Senate, um, you had representatives from the various districts and families in Rome all coming together to decide on the laws, to govern the place. This was the highest governing body in Rome for like four or five hundred years, um, or at least according to legend. In all likelihood, it probably wasn't nearly that long lived. Um, my wife is fond of saying that like all democracies and republics have an expiration date of about 300 years. Um, but the Roman Republic, you know, as much as it was kind of strange and on its last legs in like the first century BCE, um, it still held a lot of cultural sway over the Romans. And the Senate continued to persist even after the emperors had sort of emerged and taken power. Um, it just very much was kind of a figurehead to keep the nobles quiet. Um, like, typically a Roman emperor wasn't going to do terribly well if they were always at odds with the Roman Senate, just because, you know, there are a lot of powerful pat patrons hanging around, and they have money, and they can hire assassins if it really comes down to it. Um, but the Roman emperor is also the last authority, the last decision, what he says goes. Um, and if the Senate doesn't like it, well, screw him, because he's the emperor and he does what he wants. Um... The way this came about is a bit of a mess in its own right. Again, I should stress that Roman hero-worshipping tendency that we see in Cicero, that we see with Scipio Africanus and company, at long last that comes to a head, um, and it very much is at odds with the Roman Republic structure. Like, in the Roman Republic, you'll get hero worship of major senators, um, like the Gracchi, or uh, like Cicero, for that matter. Um, you'll get these major players who are recognized as, you know, important cultural and political figures. Um, but, increasingly, the status of one or two particular generals, specifically the tribunes, which are sort of raised up by the Senate, and are at least in theory subservient to the Senate, but are given sort of emergency powers to govern the show, um, the dictator, especially, which basically operates as a temporary emperor that, you know, you sort of, like, assign them power over the army when and uh, the ability to make snap decisions in a crisis, dictators are supposed to step down after the crisis has abated. Um, and it is largely considered to be Roman virtue that you both know when to take power and know when to give it up. The famous example being Cincinnatus, who apparently stepped up to be dictator, totally destroyed all of Rome's enemies, and then retired to his farm to, like, plant cabbages for the rest of his life. Well, there's this guy, Julius Caesar, and he was very much the right guy in the right 
place as far as Rome was concerned. Like, they were under attack, and Julius Caesar stepped up, and it turns out he was a brilliant general. They fought off the armies of the enemy. And the Romans are like, okay, dude, it's time for you to give up being dictator, and, you know, re remember that, like, we're in charge, the Senate, you're, you're not in charge. And Caesar was like, if I come back to Rome... And, and just, like, submit myself to the authority of the Senate. I, I may have done a couple of things that you didn't like, and as a consequence, I will be branded a traitor and killed. How about instead I just bring my army into Rome and hold the entire place hostage? And he does. Um, famously, Caesar takes his army over the Rubicon, which is the river that separates Rome from, like, the rest of Italy, um, and this is considered an act of war. The army never crosses the Rubicon. Um, and Caesar famously says, the die is cast, as he does, charges into Rome, takes over the place, basically names himself permanent dictator, emperor, with the people's uh, mark of, or seal of approval, by the way. Like, the people of Rome are all behind Caesar. Remember that hero worshipping is very strong in Roman culture. And Caesar names himself emperor, decides I'm running the show, and that's the end of the conversation. Except, of course, that the Senate then plots against him, assassinates him, and the whole thing devolves into chaos and revolution. Um, eventually, Augustus, uh, Caesar's, I guess, cousin, um, picks up the slack. Like, there's some question about whether or not the emperor is going to still be a thing, and if so, who it's going to be. Like, for a while, it seems like Mark Antony is going to get it, but he's also mixed up with this Cleopatra woman, as we talked about in the Extra History videos. Um, finally, Octavius, i.e. Augustus, sort of pulls a fast one on Mark Antony. They fight. Uh, Mark Antony is defeated and I believe kills himself in disgrace. Octavius becomes Emperor Caesar Augustus, um, who will be the first true Roman emperor, even though he very much sort of has it penned into the historical record um, that Julius Caesar was technically the first, and he's just following in his footsteps. And this ushers in the age of the, the emperors. Rome will be an empire led by an emperor for the next... 500 years. Um, and this will be Rome at the height of its power. Like, especially under Caesar Augustus, we get the Pax Romanum, the great Roman peace, um, which lasts for a hundred years, and Rome is engaged in no significant battles for its own identity or for conquest during those hundred years. It's unparalleled peace and prosperity for the Romans. It also ends... And then the rest of the imperial rule is going to be a giant mess of squabbling and fighting and emperors trying to kill each other and, like, the usual sort of nonsense any time that power this significant gets concentrated in one place. Um, but it's worth noting, again, during Augustus's rule especially, a lot of major writers and cultural figures, like Livy, for example, the, the historian, um, they are very quick to point out, you know, things aren't what they used to be. Life was better under the Republic, which is not a slight against Augustus in any way. It's instead emphasizing, you know, the Roman stock has degenerated. Roman virtue has been lost. Where are the Scipios? Where are the Catos? Where are the Ciceros of days gone by? Why do we instead have all of these gluttonous Romans who insist on living a life of luxury, who are more interested in sitting on their butts doing administrative work than actually going out and fighting? You know, where was that Spartan lifestyle that we used to practice? Um, and with this sort of return to form comes an adoption in philosophy as well. Um, to sort of 
rewind a little bit. Back when Plato and Aristotle still had their academy, um, when Arist like Plato very much left the academy in Aristotle's hands, and Aristotle ran the academy until his death. After Aristotle, though, philosophy in Greece changed significantly. Like, it broke. It fractured. There wasn't just one sort of ideology that was dominant anymore. Um, like, as much as Socrates was obviously this huge figure, especially because of the way that Plato wrote about him, and then Plato became sort of the founder of philosophy as a, a sort of rigorous scholarly discipline, and then Aristotle very much built on what Plato was doing and sort of changed the way that philosophy was looking at under Aristotle. Aristotle, there was one particular way, there was no obvious inheritor of the school after Aristotle's death. Um, so out of this grew sort of four different philosophical schools, each with different ideas, all of which were in fact carried away from Platonic and Aristotelian philosophy. Um, the first of these groups is the Cynics, and the Cynics are kind of not terribly relevant to what we're talking about. Um, but I'm going to talk about them anyway, because Diogenes the Cynic apparently walked around naked all the time and made fun of people and, like, pooped on their floors and stuff and lived in a bathtub and even mocked Alexander the Great, or so the stories tell. Um, and everybody loves Diogenes the Cynic, because, you know, who doesn't want to have a friend who will come to your house and debate philosophy with you, and then once he's tired of you, poop on your floor, say that I win the argument, and then leaves. Um... You know, it was fun in its way, but the cynics really didn't pick up a lot of followers because the cynic attitude was not terribly positive. Like, Diogenes owned nothing except, so it is said, a cape and a bowl. And one day he was down by the river putting water into his bowl and realized he could actually just, like, cup the water in his hands and threw the bowl away and never used it again because, you know, screw that, why have useless garbage hanging around? Um, this was not a lifestyle that many people were willing to adopt. Uh, so the cynics kind of fell out of favor. Like, they still bum, uh, hang around Rome occasionally being obnoxious, but, like, they're not a huge philosophical force. The three that do pick up, though, and which are very significant to what we're talking about today, um, first off are the Epicureans. Um, the Epicureans were following a fellow named Epicurus, who was very much interested in pleasure, um, but not pleasure the way that we usually talk about it. Like, many in Rome would accuse Epicurus of being basically a hedonist, of just, like, doing whatever he wanted whenever he wanted, and engaging in licentious pleasure, and having sex, and just drinking too much wine and all that, and, and the Romans, of course, are not about that. Epicurus himself, when he defended himself, was way more moderate. He seemed to think that, like, true pleasure involved studying philosophy, uh, searching for wisdom, like, actually practicing scholarly pursuits, and also practicing temperance and, and care. Like, indulgence was not what Epicurus was about. He, he thought that indulgence led to less pleasure than careful moderation. Um, which is something that most of the ancient cultures would typically agree with. So Epicurus kind of doesn't get a fair shake here. Um, but the really important one that we need to talk about here is Stoicism. Stoicism kind of evolved as a response to Epicureanism. Um, and while its origins are definitely in Greek philosophy, it is absolutely 100% picked up by the Romans. And the Romans love Stoicism. And most of the Roman thinkers that we're reading today, Ovid being the obvious exception, um, are Stoics, or at least informed by the Stoics. Cicero is almost certainly informed by the Stoics. You'll notice that like, he has that moment where, um, like, as Gaius Laelius, he's talking about the recent death of Scipio Africanus, and he has that line about, you know, 
the philosophers might wish that I said otherwise, but I was, in fact, truly grieved at the death of my friend. Um, one of the classic things that the, the Stoics are frequently talking about, like even in this, this book, in the Other Selves book, if you read Seneca's letters, there's definitely one where he talks about this time that Seneca's friend died, and Seneca shed no tears because of his weakness and because it, you know, fails... It, it, sees friendship as something selfish instead of something selfless, which Seneca doesn't appreciate. The Stoics in general did not appreciate grief. They did not like emotional reactions of any kind. Stoic philosophy prescribed Stoicism, uh, restraint, temperance, uh, a sort of calm rationality in the face of emotional outbursts and stuff like that. Um, and you can definitely see like how all of these different philosophical schools derive from Platonic and Aristotelian philosophy. Like when Epicurus is talking about pleasure and goodness, he's definitely cribbing from Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, his Aristotle's discussion of happiness, Aristotle's discussion of friendship. Likewise, the Stoics are very much taking the same sort of lessons from Plato and Aristotle. They're all about Plato's discussion in the Phaedo of how like worldly pleasures are only temporary and should therefore for be sort of ignored or avoided in favor of like mental pleasures, you know, eternal pleasures, uh, things like seeking out the ideal forms. Though the Stoics don't necessarily believe in the ideal forms, you'll notice that uh, Cicero is a little ambiguous on the subject of immortality, um, though it seems that both Gaius Laelius and Scipio Africanus believe in an immortal soul, again, following he who will not be named, that philosopher uh, who the, the oracle at Delphi says was the widest of all philosophers. It was Socrates! Um, as much as that's a part of their philosophy, it's not as core to their philosophy. Stoicism argues that you will be happiest when you are temperate. And it's hard not to see the connection to Buddhism here. Uh, like we literally just talked about in our last lecture, Buddhism and Buddhism's four noble truths where they are, you know, life is suffering and the only way to avoid suffering is to avoid attachment, avoid connection with others. The Stoics would almost certainly agree. The difference, though, is that the Stoics do put a high premium on friendship, as we can see from Cicero here and from Seneca elsewhere. Um, the Stoics believe that, like, the unified operations of various groups of people, like friends, like philosophers, like people of similar minds, will actually yield a greater, a greater benefit to uh, both the state, like Rome specifically in this case, but also to oneself. Um, you are benefited by practicing restraint. You become a better person by practicing temperance, by practicing prudence, by practicing this practical wisdom. But again, notice how Cicero slants this. Like, for many of the Greek Stoics, this is all theoretical. Um, it is all sort of highfalutin, pie-in-the-sky idealism, or sort of reference to the ideal forms. And Greek philosophy will continue to evolve. Like, the Stoic philosophers here will give way to the Neoplatonists and the centuries to come, which we'll talk about when we get to Augustine. Um, and they will very much be a more direct line to Plato and Aristotle and their assumptions about, you know, there being this sort of secondary immortal world that people inhabit, or at least interact with. 
The Romans, on the other hand, Stoicism is very much connected to their civic identity. Remember, the Romans are militaristic. They believe in you know carefully training themselves, training themselves to be able to do without food or do without pleasure uh, for long periods of time while they're on the march, while the military is going about their, their battles. Um, Stoicism, therefore, especially in the wake of the imperial moments in Rome. Like, it's it's prevalent for sure during the latter part of the, the Republic era, uh, but it becomes way more significant in the age of the emperors. It's very much this kind of civic responsibility. I give up my pleasure in order that Rome may thrive. Um, and this becomes a patriotism thing as well. Like, you'll see various writers like Livy saying, you know, all those Romans who aren't practicing Stoics, who are in fact, you know, indulging in in too much wine or in too much fine food or in women or whatever, um, they are un-Roman. They are bringing down the empire. They are destroying the proud heritage that Rome once was and represented. Um, now the fourth school that we should mention, mostly because Cicero is definitely picking on it here in De Amicita, um, is the skeptics or the academics. Um, called that uh, because, well, they also had the name peripatetics, which they were called that because they would like walk around while talking, um, and like peripatetic means to like just be the it's like the walkers. Um, these were the folks who actually did in fact inherit the academy, hence why they're called the academics as well. Uh, but they're called the skeptics because of what they believe and what they profess. Namely, they are typically skeptical. Um, they do not want to sort of. Accept uh, the kind of highfalutin Plato, Platonic systematizing or Aristotelian, like huge philosophical, like structure. Um, instead, they're they're more in the line of the Socrates of early Platonic dialogues, questioning things, insisting that we don't know what we think we know, um, arguing that we need to recognize the limitations of our thought. Um, so skeptics will frequently go around and annoy the living crap out of Stoics by saying, how do you know that your soul is immortal? How do you know that giving up on pleasure is a good thing? How do you know any of this? And the Stoics are like, shut up, that's not helpful. Like, we're trying to be practical here. And by the way, did anyone mention the Romans kicked the Greeks' butt, asshole. Like, as much as the skeptics are, in fact, an important force and will contribute to, again, the rise of Neoplatonism and, and be an important force in their own right, and will definitely write a lot of important books that will get quoted down the years, um, the Stoics very much see them as their adversaries. Um, just as the Epicureans are, like, sort of these ideological adversaries, the skeptics are just an, an annoying presence, a typically Greek presence, um, and the typically Roman Stoics will have no truck with them. Um, I want to talk about this especially because the Stoics do have a very interesting attitude about love and friendship especially. Um, part of that embodied here with Cicero and De Amicita, like I do want to walk through and talk about what Cicero has to say about friendship, um, but also with the other texts that we talked about here, Theano and this On the Nature of Love and Marriage, as well as um, Lucretius especially, like Lucretius is probably the most stoic of the bunch here um, in his De Rerum Natura. Um, and the reason why I want to sort of take this moment, like take this day to A, bring us up to speed, like talk about what has been happening um, since Greece fell and Rome rose, um, I also want to talk about how significant this is going to be because Stoicism is going to have a major influence on Christianity, which of course is going to have a major influence on the entire development of Western culture to come. 
Um, so as much as I do want to sort of talk about Deyamachita, I'm going to like kind of focus on that less because we can always go back to it in our next discussion. Uh, so we will save that for last, even though it is the earliest of the texts and arguably the most important for our purposes. Uh, but again, we'll focus on it more next time. Uh, for now, I want to look at the other three texts. Uh, and I want to sort of look at them, especially from the light that is sort of given us by this discussion of history, as well as the extra history videos on Cleopatra. Like, there's a lot going on here, and we really do need to understand exactly what the Stoic mindset is all about. Um, so first off, I want to talk kind of weirdly about the videos. Um, namely, how Cleopatra is presented and portrayed um, through this sort of Roman telling itself its own history thing. Um, like, again, Cleopatra arrives on the scene, like, is a major player in Egypt at this very pivotal moment in Roman history. Like, in this interregnum when Julius Caesar has been killed and, you know, the, the emperorship is very much up in the air and nobody knows who the next emperor is going to be or if there will be one at all. And obviously Cleopatra actually has her own designs on the whole of Roman rule if, you know, her detractors are to be believed, or heck, if history as it is presented by the Extra History crew is to be believed. Um, like, I kind of suspect that Cleopatra never had, you know, designs on actually becoming a Roman emperor in her own right. She was too smart for that. Um, but at least being in with whoever the next Roman emperor wa was, or for that matter, having a son to the next Roman emperor, that would be a pretty impressive accomplishment. Um, but as awesome as all of that is, and as cool as Cleopatra was, and as much as it's really cool to see, like, a, a female player, you know, absolutely wheeling and dealing all these, you know, typically dude-oriented political circles, um, as much as that is very refreshing to see, like, I, I really don't know if we can go with hardcore feminism on this one. Cleopatra is, again, complicated. Um, but I really am interested in the Roman response to her. That's the thing that I most want to draw out here. Notice that, like, upon uh, Cleopatra getting close to Mark Antony and Mark Antony sort of talking about including Cleopatra as part of his retinue, like, making her his wife, notice that Octavian's response is to absolutely launch this gigantic smear campaign against Cleopatra, calling her this woman sorcerer and, like, painting it as though she's bewitching Mark Antony. Notice what that says about both Octavian and the people that he's trying to convince. Octavian is functioning. Octavia is operating on the assumption that Romans aren't going to take kindly to this shit. And they don't. Like, this political campaign totally works. Um, he is well, like, Octavian is well aware that the Romans are still locked in that sort of stoic mindset that we reject pleasure, we resist temptation, we do not indulge in these things, and therefore Mark Antony is weak-minded for letting this witch corrupt him with her sexual wiles and tenacity. Notice the subtext here that Mark Antony is un-Roman for fraternizing with this Egyptian woman who is obviously sort of manipulating him as Octavian presents it. You know, this is very much presented as a, this is a violation of core Roman values. This is not who we are. Octavian is very much driving home that, you know, this sort of sexual transgression cannot be tolerated. And notice the implication, too, that by indulging in this, Mark Antony is weak. 
sexuality from the perspective of the Stoics, especially, and sort of at large the entire Roman Empire, is perceived to be weakness. Um, because as this Stoicism becomes more and more dominant in Roman circles, as it sort of more and more pervades their historical and, and cultural understanding of who they are, um, as it becomes more Roman to be Stoic and more Stoic to be Roman, um, it's very clear that like sexuality and pleasure of all kinds is very much on the outs here. Um, now, to talk about this more, I actually want to kind of point to the most obvious counterexample, namely our Ovid reading for today. Um, so notice, we get this little chunk of Ovid's The Art of Love, this little poem here. Um, Ovid was absolutely, like, the most important poet of his time. Um, he was living, like, between 50 BCE and 50 AD, um, so he was very much here at the exact same time. Like, he was the major Roman poet as Augustus was sort of ascending into power and consolidating the imperial throne, um, like, making it into the institution that would last for literally hundreds of years to come. Um, Ovid was as was a huge uh, poet, like I said, like he wrote the Metamorphoses, that, that whole sort of retelling of Greek uh, mythology, but with a Roman bent. Um, but Ovid also definitely ran or rankled some people the wrong way with this particular text. Um, you'll notice, again, we've got this, this passage, The Art of Love, and this is a totally different attitude from what we've seen from the Stoics. Um, and it's worth talking about, because I think it is actually more typically vanilla Roman, in a sense. Um, like, as much as I've been stressing Romans are Stoics, and Stoicism lends itself to Roman values, um, there is something kind of artificial about that, that it is sort of like it's kind of similar to the way that like patriotism in America has been kind of co-opted by certain values like small town America is somehow more patriotic than big city America or you know like uh, American patriotism involves you know sitting around drinking beer watching fireworks while the flag waves in the background like that's not necessarily patriotism that's kind of more jingoism I suspect Stoicism for the Romans has a very similar flavor, I think. Like, yes, it does align with Roman values, and it is sort of typically Roman in a lot of ways, but I, as much as, you know, we sort of imagine, or the Romans are sort of imagining themselves and sort of charging themselves to be more Stoics, to be more resistant to pleasure, to be more, you know, like, patriotic in this sense, Honestly, like, earlier Roman writing, when you look at, like, the, the sort of um, more sexually charged writings of Virgil or, or other poets of the time, um, I think that there actually is a sort of love of pleasure that is typically Roman. It's that sort of just lust for all the things in life that is more typically Roman. Um, and Ovid is sort of joining into that tradition. Like, notice the way that he writes about love here. Um, there's something comical and harmless about what Ovid is writing. It, it's, again, sort of fitting into the Kama Sutra or Genesis 2 perspective of love, that where it's kind of shameless and totally non-judgmental. Um, on the one hand, I suspect Ovid is being at least a little bit satirical here. He is kind of poking fun um, at bad behavior. But at the same time, he's doing it with such good spirits that it's hard to kind of fault him for it. Um, 
So notice, like, even those first lines, love is a kind of war and no assignment for cowards. Where those banners fly, heroes are always on guard. Soft, those barracks. They know long marches, terrible weather, night and winter and storm, grief and excessive fatigue. Often the rain pelts down from the drenching cloudbursts of heaven. Often you lie on the ground, wrapped in a mantle of cold. Notice the description here, how we are presenting love as though it is a kind of war, as though it requires Roman virtues of endurance, of you know, willingness to, to endure the elements or, or suffering or, or like hunger. You know, it's not a comfortable proposition. Like Ovid is sort of taking he's co-opting this Roman jingoistic, stoic attitude and sort of making fun of it by talking about it in the context of something typically not stoic, namely lovemaking, um, this sort of indulgent behavior. Um, but notice, too, that, like, he seems to be pretty casual about the way that, like, adultery and stuff is conducted, how you, you know, seduce these various peoples. Um, so, like, in the second section on page 41, he writes, If you were ever caught, no matter how well you've concealed it, though it is as clear as the day, swear, up and down, it's a lie. Don't be too abject, and don't be too unduly attentive. That would establish your guilt far beyond anything else. Wear yourself out if you must, and prove in her bed that you could not wear yourself out or could not possibly be that good coming from some other girl. Some recommend Spanish fly is useful on such an occasion. This I do not endorse. I think a poison or worse. Others say pepper is good, compounded with seeds of the nettle, or try a chamomile brew, steeping pyrethium in wine. Notice what he's doing here. If you are ever caught cheating on your wife, and your wife demands to know where you have been, notice that Ovid instead says, like, well, don't come clean to her. That's what the Stoics would suggest. Like, you should, A, not be committing adultery at all, because, again, sexual sin, indulgence, etc., etc. The proper Stoic doesn't even have a wife, because he is instead devoted to his, you know, intellectual pursuits and, like, military responsibilities such that a wife would just get in the way. Instead, the Stoic would absolutely be like, if... If you are in this situation, definitely tell the truth. Again, like, you should be true in all things. Ovid instead counsels the opposite. Lie. Lie even if it is clear as day. Swear up and down it is a lie. Um, don't be too abject, abject and don't be unduly attentive. And then notice he starts describing these possible remedies. Spanish fly, pepper, chamomile, brew. As you go on, he'll list more and more of them and finally come on to oysters. Um... He's listing aphrodisiacs here. What he is describing is if your wife catches you in, in an adulterous relationship, the correct response is to get yourself worked up, like do the Roman equivalent of consuming Viagra so you can perform, and then you can say to your wife, how could I possibly be this aroused if you know I was actually sleeping with somebody else earlier this evening? Um, Ovid is saying, you know, he's poking fun at this idea. He's making it a sort of, like, clever slight. The deception is part of the game for him, and it's not to be, you know, upset by. Um, you should be okay with that. Um, 
Notice again what he says on page 42 in the third section. I was about to omit the art of deceiving a husband, fooling a vigilant guard, crafty though either might be. Let the bride honor, obey, pay proper respect to her husband. That is only correct. Decency says so, and law. But why should you, set free and not too long ago either, by the decree of the court, have to be kept like a bride? Listen to me and learn, though your watchers are there by the hundred. If you will take my advice, you can get rid of them all. How can they interfere or stop you from writing a letter? What is a bathroom for? Tell them you have to go there. Haven't you any close friend who knows how to carry a tablet under her arm? Or perhaps tucked into the fold of a gown? Isn't she able to hide a note in the top of a stocking? Or, if that's apt to be found, in the instep of a shoe? He's telling you how to sneak letters to your loved ones, how to, you know, get correspondence from your traps and from the places that you were not observed to the people that you were trying to seduce. Like, Ovid seems to be totally okay with this act of seduction. But as much as this is absolutely in opposition to the Stoic mindset, again, like, Ovid is, if anything, making fun of the Stoics, by characterizing these sorts of plots and counterplots, the you know war of love, as he puts it in that opening section, as though it were something that Stoics would admire. Like, you have to endure all of these trials in order to see your beloved. You have to, you know, successfully eat whatever it is that, um, that you know, makes you erect so you can deceive your wife. You know, this is very Stoic language with a very unstoic conclusion, unstoic sort of uh, ob objective. Um, it's also worth noticing that Ovid very much gets into hot water over this poem. Um, like, again, it's during the reign of Caesar Augustus that Ovid writes this, and it comes out and is in circulation at roughly the same time as it turns out that Caesar Augustus's daughter, you know, Octavius, uh, his daughter is apparently caught sleeping with Mark Antony's son. Ooh. Like, think about the political situation for the for this moment. Octavian has, at long last, overcome Mark Antony via war and plotting. You know, he has totally, like, cast Mark Antony's reputation into dis disrepute by accusing Cleopatra and of, like, manipulating him. He has successfully completely railroaded Mark Antony from society. And then, as soon as he's in power and he is, you know, the, the emperor, Ovid writes this poem at the same time that his daughter is being caught sleeping with literally the enemy, the potential, you know, revolutionary here. This is a really tough spot for a, a um, Caesar Augustus, it is very much a crucial moment in, in Rome's sort of development, and Ovid is not making things better. Scholars still kind of disagree about exactly why Ovid got exiled, um, but it is generally considered that this poem certainly did not help the situation. Uh, but what's more, I want to kind of point to the political situation, the political climate at this moment, because it's kind of interesting to see how all of these things are interacting. Again, notice that Augustus is in this really difficult spot. He is very much trying to, you know, say that Rome is still what it used to be. Yes, you have emperors now. I am the authority. I am, you know, like the highest authority, and Augustus will even institute this policy where emperors upon their death will be turned into gods. Like, this is a huge move. It's going to require a lot of, like, politicking to get across. 
Um, and at the same time, you've got guys like Livy who are coming out of here thinking, you know, oh, why can't we be Romans like we used to be? Why can't we practice Stoicism? Um, Augustus is very much making a show here of rejecting Ovid's kind of Roman virtues in favor of Stoic virtues. Again, kind of artificially, I think. Augustus is leaning into the sort of jingoistic Roman attitudes at the time. And I want to kind of point this out because, again, as much as we're talking here about the philosophy of love and we're looking at sort of love as it's discussed throughout history, at the same time, you'll remember from Foucault that Foucault frequently talks about the discussion of love and sexuality explicitly as being tools of power. And this is one of those moments where I think it is cast in extremely stark relief. Augustus rejects a sort of lackadaisical, satirical, fun-loving attitude towards sexuality and love, i.e. Ovid's poem here, The Art of Love, in favor of a stoic, sort of more uh, temperate, more moderated, even repressive attitude towards sexuality for political points. There is a reason why he rejects Ovid and embraces instead Lucretius or Seneca, because it looks better, because it works better, because he has, in the past, gone on a crusade to reject Antony for exactly this kind of uh, open-mindedness towards sexuality. Augustus has a reputation to live up to. He cannot bear this happening in his own household, and he certainly can't bear these uppity poets making trouble for him. Uh, like Ovid is, in fact, going to have his exile reversed after a couple of years or so. Um, but nonetheless, like he has to abandon his writing projects, and he's you know exile is not fun even at the best of times. Um, it's not what it used to be, but it's it's still not good. Um, it's significant though for us to notice that again, it's a lot of the development of of the history of philosophy is subject the, to these kind of political factors. If, in fact, Octavius hadn't gone on his crusade against Antony and Cleopatra, he might have been more open to Ovid, and the Romans might have had a very different attitude towards love, and Christianity might have developed very differently, and we might be talking about this in a very different way today. Likewise, because Augustus was really paranoid about his daughter's affairs, because he had, you know, a reputation to upkeep where he was, you know, not tolerating sexual infidelity a la Mark Antony and Cleopatra, he was in a bit of a spot here and could not tolerate Ovid's license over, say, Lucretius's rejection of sexuality and love. So Stoicism became the dominant force in Roman self-identity and Roman philosophy, and their view of love, by consequence, became the dominant voice as well. So when we see later Roman writers like Augustine or like Tertullian, you know, other sort of decent Christian writers talking about love, they're going to do so with a lot of skepticism, with a lot of criticism, uh, perhaps more than is warranted. Uh, again, Part of the goal in this class is to see how these historical factors influence philosophy. This is a great moment to see that in action. Now, with that in mind, let's look at the more stoic writers on their, on their treatment of love, like in contrast to what Ovid is writing about. Um, so, on the one hand, the one that I really want to sort of draw out, this one I very much added to the class from uh, Professor Roy's uh, initial 
configuration because like I was stumbling across it in the, the Simon May book and I was just very struck by how strongly Lucretius is talking about this. Um, I want to look at De Rerum Natura uh, on the nature of things. Um, and in De Rerum Natura, again, Lucretius is a hardcore Stoic. It comes through very clearly throughout the text. Um, but he is very much doing a very Aristotelian project. Namely, he is looking at the natural world. He is talking about what Aristotle would call physics um, or biology, as we might call it today. Um, he is looking at like animals and their interactions with one another, and he's looking at sort of the way that things work. Um, and you know, this is obviously a really long text. I included the entire PDF because it's the only version that I could find. Quite like copy paste neatly. Um, we are dealing with not you know any of the other things that he talks about. Like again, if you look at the chapter titles here, we're dealing with the ultimate constitution of the universe, motion and forms of the atoms, the soul and its nature. Like typically Aristotelian physics kind of things. But then here in book four, we're talking about psychology, sensation, thought, and what is essentially the mind. Um, we are doing on the soul stuff, uh, which again. Like, this was an incredibly important text for Aristotle and the Aristotelian canon, so it makes sense that Lucretius would get around to it. But notice what Lucretius has to say about love here on page 178 and following. There is stirred in us that seed whereof we spoke before, when first the age of manhood strengthens our limbs. So, you know, seed, puberty, it's very clear what we're talking about here. For one cause moves and rouses one thing, a different cause another. From man, only the influence of man stirs human seed. And as soon as it has been aroused, bursting forth, it makes its way from out the whole body, through the limbs and frame, coming together into fixed places, and straightway rouses at last the natural parts of the body. And there arises the desire to seek that body by which the mind is smitten with love. So, this is obviously very wrong from a biological standpoint. Like, no, the seed does not, in fact, like, infest all of the parts of the body when one is aroused. Though, you know, hormones could, I guess, allegorically or analogically be described to be doing this. I don't know. I am not a biologist. Um, I do get the sense that this is not right, though. But notice what he goes on to say. For, notice that it is the mind is smitten with love. It is struck by love. It is sort of affected by love. It is a passive sort of relationship. But he gets even more sort of vivid with his description here. For as a rule, all men fall towards the wound, and the blood spurts out in that direction whence we are struck by the blow, and if it is near at hand, the red stream reaches our foe. Thus, then, he who receives a blow from the darts of Venus, whoever it be who wounds him, inclines to that whereby he is smitten, for an unspoken desire foretells the pleasure to come. Notice the description here. Love is a blow, a wound. We are struck, smitten by the darts of Venus. And we still use this language to some degree today, like love struck or falling in love, both indicate this kind of, you know, like mortal uh, vulnerability, this kind of oops, and now I'm stuck in this situation. Lucretius is probably not coining these ideas, although it certainly does seem to be an interesting parallel and I'd be keen to, to sort of investigate further. Uh, the Greeks have similar ideas, so again, he's not pioneering it, but it's, it's very very prevalent here. Um, but notice that Lucretius is very much emphasizing the sort of debilitating quality of love. Um, 
so on the one hand, he is talking about it as though it is sweet and if it, you know, it, it's like it makes you feel good and it invigorates you. But at the same time, it's dangerous. He goes on, this pleasure is Venus for us. From it comes Cupid, our name for love. Uh, from it, first of all, that drop of Venus's sweetness has trickled into our heart and chilly care has followed after. For if the object of your love is away, yet images of her are at hand, her loved name is present to your ears. But it is best to flee those images, scare away from you what feeds your love, and to turn your mind some other way, and vent your passion on other objects, and not to keep it set once for all on the love of one, and thereby store up for yourself care and certain pain. For the sore gains strength and festers by feeding, and day by day the madness grows, and the misery becomes heavier until you dissipate the first wounds by new blows, and heal them while still fresh, wandering after some wanton, or else can turn the movements of the mind elsewhere. Notice the description here. Madness, and misery, and wounds by new blows, and venting your passion on other objects. Like, flee these images, scare you, scare away from you what feeds your love. Lucretius is very clearly suggesting, like, prescribing to us, do not follow love where it wants you to go. It is dangerous, it will drive you to distraction, it will make you crazy, it will hurt you, and you will suffer, and you will be in pain, and while your one wound heals, new wounds will spring forth. This is not healthy. And this is very much the Stoic attitude here. Again, the Stoics are all about sort of restraining yourself, protecting yourself from these passions, in order to prevent yourself from being caught up in this. Now again, the parallels to Buddhism seem really clear here. Um, like, it's very obvious that the same sort of motivation, the same sort of logic, you know, pain is caused by being in love, Buddha tells us, therefore do not make connections, do not allow yourself to become vulnerable. Lucretius is saying virtually the same thing here. Um, and now there's not a whole lot of evidence that Buddhism in any of its forms wandered over into Greece and the Western world. But remember that Alexander the Great did make it all the way to India. It is entirely possible. Like, Buddhism would have been in its infancy at the same time as Alexander the Great is palling around doing his Hellenism thing. It's possible that Buddhism in some form or another got picked up by the Greeks by, and then eventually by the Romans. Um, it's not beyond the pale. At the very least, the influences that brought about Buddhism are certainly something that affected the soldiers marching with Alexander as they founded new homes, as they you know, settled down in, in the various parts of the empire. It wouldn't be totally impossible to imagine that Buddhism and Hinduism have some influence on Stoicism, especially because they do come to a lot of the same conclusions, especially because a lot of the warnings are very similar. Like, it's pretty obvious. You could definitely draw the parallels between this and the Dhammapada. Like, it's, it's there. Um, I wouldn't draw a direct connection. I'm definitely not knowledgeable enough to know, like, who, if anyone, would make that connection, or, you know, how plausible that is. Um, but I think that it's definitely worth noticing that, like the Buddhists, the Stoics are very much against making connections because of the way that that makes you vulnerable, makes you, you know, potentially not yourself. Now, the difference here is that the Stoics seem to have a much higher, like, uh, premium on freedom. 
Um, like Cicero is obviously in favor of friendship, very much in favor of friendship, to the point that he's saying that like nothing is worth doing without friendship is the highest pleasure of all things. And while I suspect Cicero of doing a little bit of rhetorical like uh, grandioseness here, like he may not, he's doing more oratory than philosophy, and he may very well just be talking this stuff up. Um, rather than actually arguing for its significance, I think it's worth noticing that the, that the Stoics, as a rule, do value friends, but in a sort of Aristotelian sense, with this idea that, you know, you are both practicing virtue in parallel, and therefore improving your circumstances, recognizing each other's virtues. Um, this is a friendship, a relationship that sort of keens the soul, makes it sharper instead of duller, um, so what Lucretius is describing here is a passion that overwhelms you. Friendship is a passion that makes you colder, um, if that makes sense. Friendship makes you more of who you are, and that's why the Stoics value it, and that's why the Romans value it. Um, which is why I suspect that this is very much more a Roman thing than a, than a uh, Stoic thing, as far as Cicero is concerned. Um, but again, like, notice the way that Lucretius is specifically getting down on love all over the place. Like, passage after passage, he's emphasizing, you know, anyone who shuns the, the fruits of Venus will, you know, choose the joys which bring no pain, but pleasure does all of these things, makes you lovesick. The passion of lovers is constantly, like, taking over their bodies. Like, he's talking about it from this biological perspective, like, we're, you know, infected with love. Um, and therefore it is to be avoided. It is too dangerous. It is wrong. Um, even, you know, at its best form, like on page 181, he's saying, and these ills are found that in love that is true and fully prosperous, but when love is crossed and hopeless, there are ills which you might detect even with closed eyes, ills without number, so that it is better to be on the watch beforehand, even as I have taught you, and to beware that you not be entrapped. Like, love at its best is dangerous and all-consuming and will, like, take you over. And that's, like the best possible circumstance. The worst is, you know, it's crossed and, you know, people will commit suicide and they'll get, like, covered in madness and here are all these examples of various, like, great mythic figures who are, you know, potentially destroyed by love. Like, following the Greek notions that, like, love leads people to do some really dangerous, stupid things, the way that Plato and Aristotle talk about it, the way that everybody understands, you know, Helen, the most beautiful woman ever, like, brought ruin to the Greeks and to the Trojans, um, the Romans and the Stoics especially very much buy into this, very much believe this, very much agree with this. Lucretius is the poster child for love is dangerous and therefore avoid it. Now, Lucretius is not just limiting this to just love either. Like, a lot of De Re Rom Natura is very much devoted towards sort of rejecting the physical world altogether, which may very well be another parallel that we could draw to Buddhism, although I suspect it's in a very different means here. Again, like, uh, Lucretius is sort of emphasizing this in the same way that, that Plato is talking about these sort of ideal forms, this higher reality that we should engage in rather than getting caught up in, you know, the, the sensory, like, world that we interact with, you know, just as we talked about the, the allegory of the cave where what you see in, in your day-to-day -day life are just shadows and really what you should search for, the ideal forms which have so much more reality. Um, 
I believe that Lucretius is following that train of thought much more, which might end up with us asking questions about, well, what are the relationships between Plato and, you know, Buddhism or Hinduism or, like, the early stages? Who knows? That's, again, way beyond my pay grade, and I don't think anyone has any really compelling evidence that Plato had any interactions with uh, the Hindu world at all, although it's, again, not out of the realm of possibility. Um, suffice it to say that Lucretius is on this track. Lucretius is turning up the volume on what Plato was talking about in the symposium. These suggestions that love at its best are, is love of beauty, love of the ideal, and not love of a single person. Um, Lucretius is doing, is basically looking at Alcibiades in the symposium, run away with love, completely caught up in his passion, like, in, like insane for his love of Socrates, and saying, therefore avoid all love. All love is dangerous. All love will carry you away. The best you can hope for is just like a madness that pervades your senses. The worst can drive you to distraction and death. Um, it is best to avoid. Um, Lucretius is just unapologetically saying that this is dangerous business and no good Roman citizen will indulge in it. Um, and notice, too, that this doesn't just have to do with Roman men. Like, this entire lecture, we've been talking about the men because Rome, if anything, is even more masculine-centric than, than the Greeks were. Um, but it is kind of significant that one of our readings for today and one of the one of the texts in our, in our uh, Philosophy of Erotic Love book is, in fact, written by a woman to another woman about the womanly experience of love, namely Theano's on marriage and fidelity. Um, but at the same time as this is sort of, like... Uh, this is very much women writing to women, um, and Theano is characterized in the, the little preface here as being a Pythagorean. This reeks of Stoicism as well. Um, and the Pythagoras that she's probably relating to is in all likelihood a Pythagoras uh, very much informed by Stoicism. Notice that this wife is talking to another wife about her husband being caught up in some concubine and advising her not to make trouble about it. Like, again, she is prescribing tr typically stoic, typically sort of um, Roman values here. Um, so notice, like, uh, in, in this greeting, I hear repeatedly about your husband's madness. He has a courtesan, also that you were jealous of him. Notice, again, first off, she characterizes this love as madness, like this passion, this lust, is something that infests him, and her husband is weak for having followed it. But notice, too, that the jealousy, too, is a passion that Theano wants to kind of caution against. My dear, I have known many men with the same malady. It is as if they are hunted down by these women and held fast, as if they had lost their minds. But you are dispirited by night and by day. You are sorely troubled and contrive things against him. Don't you, at least, be that way, my dear. For the moral excellence of a wife is not surveillance of her husband, but companionable accommodation. It is in the spirit of accommodation to bear his folly. Notice the way that she's framing this. Like, this is a very typical situation in the Roman and, for that matter, the Greek world. Your husband is chasing after some concubine, some courtesan, some, you know, possibly prostitute in the more traditional sense because the Romans in general did not have the same sort of like slave women business that the ancient Greeks did um, but you know it could very well be something similar to that at any rate but notice that Theano first and foremost criticizes the husband he is wrong to be chasing after another woman now not because it is wrong for men to do this like again the Romans 
have fairly liberal ideals about the the sort of you know marriage relationship like the greeks they tend to think that women need to be faithful to their husbands but husbands don't need to be faithful to their wives in the same way like the greeks you know a guy who has had sex with multiple women is not frowned upon but a woman who has had sex with multiple men is unless she is you know a prostitute um but what she is emphasizing here is that he is wrong to be carried away by lust. The Romans don't frown upon, you know, men sleeping with multiple women. What they frown upon is men getting carried away by multiple women or by any woman whatsoever. They would prescribe essentially a loveless marriage. Which is not to say that, like, it's loveless in the sense that, like, they hate each other and they're throwing things and stuff like that, but rather a dispassionate marriage. Just as the Greeks emphasized marriage as an economic arrangement, the Romans would do the same. They would say, you know, you get married in order to unify houses or to guarantee protection from, from like, potential attackers, be they, you know, political infighting reasons or actual threats from outside in the case of the various outlying provinces. Um, there are lots of political reasons to make a marriage. Sex and the desire for sex shouldn't be one of them. A proper Roman citizen resists that urge, does not love his wife in that way, um, does not get carried away. So Theano is saying to the wife, you should be better than your husband. Like, she criticizes the husband and then criticizes, you know, this woman, this Nicostrate, for getting caught up in it as well, for being carried away by her jealousy. Both of these passions are wrong. If he associates with the courtesan with a view towards pleasure, he associates with his wife with a view towards the beneficial. It is beneficial not to compound evils with evils and not to augment folly with folly. Some faults, dear, are stirred up all the more when they are condemned, but cease when they are passed over in silence, much as they say fire quenches itself if left alone. Besides, though it seems that you wish to escape notice yourself, by condemning him you will take away the veil that covers your own condition. Don't admit to your husband that you're jealous. It will make the relationship even more firm. It will make things worse for you. As a stoic woman, you should be bearing with this with equanimity. That's the suggestion here. And notice that this is not sort of like an anti-feminism, you know, stay in your place kind of attitude. No, she's very much saying practice the same virtues as your husband. Practice the same restraint, the same sort of lack of indulgence. Practice temperance. Don't get jealous. Jealousy, like your husband's lust, are weaknesses. You should be better than that. And if anything, that counsel, that idea that you should at least be better, suggests that, you know, yeah, men are going to do this, because men are the worst, and men are very susceptible to this. But Theano is suggesting that women should, by nature, be better at stoicism should be actually it should come easier to them they are more virtuous by nature husbands will be weak but their wives have to remain strong that's the way that it's framed and again there may be a double standard there's lots of sort of depth here if we want to look at this from a feminist lens but i caution you against it note what the culture is saying note how the culture is addressing the situation given their bad situation here is a woman talking to another woman talking about how to practice the same virtue that the men are practicing and what's more how to be better than their men at it um, there's a lot of practical advice here as well too 
Like, notice that she advises against picking a fight with this woman because a woman without shame can be a very dangerous enemy. Um, notice that she is, like, absolutely against her divorcing her husband because of all the practical considerations there between the battles and reproaches and the sport, like, it'll spoil her situation. She'll be poor and on the street. Like, all of that is bad news. Theano as a typical Roman, as a typical Stoic, is eminently practical, not interested in their passions, and very much counsels them to temperance and moderation. Control yourself, is what she tells uh, her friend. Um, and this is very much the attitude of all of the Romans in this time. This is the Stoic understanding of the world. This is what most Roman philosophers and thinkers are going to tell one another. Um, this is the typically Roman philosophy, in a sense. Um, now, next time we're going to talk, like, basically about the whole of uh, De Amicito, since we didn't talk about it very much today, besides sort of the historical context. Um, so keep an eye on how friendship differs. Um, if love is this passion that is therefore unmanly and not worth engaging in, and Lucretius even tells people to avoid it at all costs, why is friendship exceptional? Why is friendship acceptable to the Stoic and the Roman mindset? But notice, too, the, the political dimension. Because Cicero is very quick to talk about it. It very much interests him. Like, just as we talked about with Aristotle, where a friendship can make or break a government, that it can overthrow tyrannies, and therefore tyrants are typically very suspicious of friendships, notice that the Romans have very similar ideas in mind, have very similar sort of acknowledgement of the potential power of a friendship in upturning the entire empire, either in the Republic Age or in the Imperial Age. Um, and then, going forward... This will obviously be super important as it factors into Christianity and the other things that we'll talk about. Um, so read the rest of Damachita for the next reading. And then for next week, we'll also be tackling the New Testament. Um, so there will be a handout for that as well. Um, so in the meantime, I hope that this was illuminating. And I hope that you're thinking about like how Stoicism relates to Eastern philosophy. And you know, lots of food for thought and writing your response paper there. But again, keep in mind, like this is just one more sort of story in the transition of love from what Plato and Aristotle were talking about to what we've got today. This is yet another sort of stone in the, the bridge here. Um, so keep in mind, like, this is yet another attitude that we're going to run into and, and sort of have to contend with as future equations of love are being calculated. Um, so happy reading, and I'll talk to you soon.